Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the No Low Ballers podcast, brought to you by Go Wild uh, in partnership with GunBroker.com. Is that is that okay? Is That's that great. All right. That's sorry. great. All right. We should just keep this. We'll just keep the banter going. <laughs> Shows that we, we have no idea what we're how, doing. How did I do? Who, who am I? How did I get here? <laughs> How'd you like that intro? Put it in the comments down below. <laughs> yeah. If you liked it, give it a thumbs up. If you didn't, don't bother. Ring that uh, bell. Yeah. Uh, no, seriously, anyway, welcome to... <laughs> <laughs> to the No Low Ballers podcast. Uh, if you couldn't tell already, we are an incredibly serious, incredibly professional group of people. We know exactly what we're talking about at all times. I think uh, I'm in the wrong place. Mm. Me too. But, you know, you fake it till you make it, okay. right? Uh, but so I've got the Go Wild crew with me. We've got Alan from GunBroker.com. I'm Logan Medish of High Caliber History, your host. Uh, and on the No Low Ballers podcast, we're talking about all sorts of things, guns. Some stuff weird, some stuff wacky, some stuff military uh, stuff you may know about, stuff you may not know about, but at the end of the day, we hope you leave here having learned something, having not lost any brain cells, and maybe you'll go pick something up on gumbroker.com when you're done. I know I find myself looking on there uh, a lot in between things. I, I just hope to lose as little dignity as possible anytime I'm on a podcast. But don't you have to have dignity in order uh, to lose that's it? That's true. I hadn't yeah. factored that in. I'm not good at math. so uh, Yeah. <laughs> I get it, man. I get it. <laughs> well, today we're, we're talking about guns with mob connections, which is a, a really cool topic of things to talk about. I mean, you know, who doesn't love a good mob movie? And, you know, and me being from Detroit, you know, the whole Jimmy Hoffa getting mixed up in things. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we never did find Jimmy, and I'm, I'm sure the mob got him somewhere. But we're going to be <laughs> – he's buried on a 50-yard line somewhere. <laughs> Tune in for our true crime podcast. Yeah, <laughs> Jimmy exactly. Hoffa. Uh, but we're talking about all sorts of guns with mob connections. And, of course, that means, you know, we got to talk about – Tommy guns, and we're going to talk about modded 1911s and, and all sorts of stuff. And, um, you know, some of these things you can find on Gun Broker. Some of these things you can't. So it means some of them you can add to your gearbox and go wild, and some of them you can't. Right? I got pumped when I saw this episode because I love mobster movies, American Gangster, Scarface, Road to Perdition, mm -hmm. I think is really relevant to the, the topic today. Absolutely. If you're a gun guy, Public Enemies all right. is fantastic. Yeah. There you go. Absolutely, and uh, oh my gosh, what? Yeah, never mind. It was there, and now it's <laughs> nah, gone. Sorry, yeah. it'll be in the show notes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'll be a blank line. Yeah. Look for the blank line in the show notes. Yeah, uh, but so you know, we like I said, we can't talk about mob stuff without talking about Tommy guns, and so you know, let's talk a little bit about the Thompson submachine gun. Um, you know, we're here at the Go Wild headquarters in Louisville, and so of course there is a Kentucky connection with the Thompson submachine gun. I didn't gun. know this until you just said it. So, I mean, this is pretty cool. We're like literally 80 miles away from the, the yeah. start of this story. And the reason I know that is because I can't remember if there's like a sign or a billboard-ish in front of a building in, in Covington or Newport 
or if it's actually painted on the side of the building, but it's like the home of the Tommy. I gun. think when you go to Chicago, it says it says like Chicago typewriter, and it says blame Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> well, John. So John Tolliver Thompson is the namesake and the inventor, uh, and as we alluded, born in in Newport, Kentucky, and his house is still there, and it's actually a music venue. Um, and, or at least it was as of a couple years ago. And the, the backdrop behind the stage is really cool. It was crossed Tommy guns up oh, on the wall. And that stuff. may be what I've neat. seen. It could building. be. Yeah. So, but that's, but that's his house, um, which I think, I think is really cool, you know, uh, but, but it's not he, the Southgate house, is it? I don't remember that. I don't know. We, we'll figure it out. Uh, show notes. Show notes. Show notes. Yeah. yeah. Show Road notes. trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The next Let's episode pack live up these cameras, from Newport. Get the GoPros. That's right. Yeah. It's, you know, it's kind of interesting too. There's some other mob ties in Louisville, in particular, because down at the Sealbach Hotel, there was like escape hatches for Capone. I think we would have mm, meetings yeah. there, and there's okay. like secret doorways and stairwells. Chris was a uh, bellhop there. He could tell us. Some many mean, stories makes mm. sense. I mean, Kentucky. most of those are not fit for podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, Kentucky's proximity to you know the big cities of the era, like Cincinnati and Chicago, and of course, y'all have a little bit of history with distilling and moonshine yeah, here. So that's right. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. So the Tommy Gun's got you know it's got a neat history uh, that spans obviously well beyond. Uh, the gangsters and it goes into you know world war ii and things like that but the irish problems the irish problems yep we kind of new yeah. episode yeah. yep uh <laughs> yeah um but you know with talking about the mob it doesn't get any more quintessential mob gun uh than than the tommy gun and it doesn't get any more quintessential mob than the saint valentine's day massacre mm-hmm. right um, and of course there were two Tommy guns used in the St. Valentine's day massacre. And there's, um, a really interesting story about those guns. They actually still exist. Um, and they are in the Berrien County, Michigan Sheriff's office, uh, in the evidence locker. They are still there, uh, because in- interestingly enough, even though it's been almost a hundred years, you know, it happened February 14th, 1929. No one was ever actually tried or convicted for that crime. They're, you know, they pretty much know who did it, right? You know, they, when they showed up uh, to all the carnage there, there was one guy who was still left alive. He'd been riddled with bullets, I think like 12 shots or something. And, and they asked him, they said, who, who shot you? Who did this? And he said, nobody shot me. I'm like, dude's got 11, 11 or 12 bullet holes in him. Nobody shot me. And they, so, like, lined them up, right? Was, yeah, they lined them against the wall. Yeah. Yep. They Absolutely. showed them police uniforms, and the idea was they were basically pretending to, to do a bus. They lined them up in the wall like you would, you know, assume the position for yeah. frisking, and Walter Bax returned to them. Yep. Open fire. Yep. The uh, Mob Museum in Las Vegas has the actual wall on display. Yes, they do. The yep. bullet hole's oh, still wow. intact. Yep. yep. Yeah, because when the building came down, it was in a garage, and when the garage came down, the guy that owned it, um, was trying to sell off the bricks, you know, to make some money off the building. Um, the wall was actually assembled in a nightclub in the men's room, so you could, you know, go go take a piss standing at the wall where, where all the guys were shot. You know, somehow that didn't pan out, right? You I, know, I, it didn't, I, I didn't say, take off. Standing facing that wall with my back to everybody yeah, is not, not something I want to Yeah, not, not a it good plan. It didn't end well the last time someone tried that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so now it's it's on display in the, the Mob Museum in Vegas. But, but the guns, because it... No one was ever tried for the crime, and even though everyone is long dead and gone, it is still technically an open case on the books, and so those guns are still being held in evidence in the Sheriff's Department in western Michigan, and I was fortunate enough to go check them out a few years ago, so I got to actually have some some hands-on time 
with those Tommy guns. And one of them, it's really neat uh, because the finish is totally destroyed on one of the guns. And it's because the serial numbers had been removed. Uh, and Dr. Goddard, who was the pioneer of ballistic forensics at the time, was developing a way with acids to raise the serial numbers back up out of the metal. Um, and so it destroyed the finish. But sure enough, that worked. I mean, if you hold it in the right light, you can see mm. the markings on the gun. And so, that you know, it, it actually worked. And that's, you know, where we get the, the beginnings of forensic ballistics or ballistic forensics, um, which is pretty cool stuff. And I just think it's so wild that those guns are still technically evidence in an almost 100-year-old yeah. crime. Is there an expiration on that? Or is it forever? I don't know. That's a good question. Huh. I really don't know how that works. I, I think... Uh, I, I mean, if it's not at 100 years, when when is it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, or, you know, or if it's not when everyone's literally dead and gone. Like, yeah. You know, because like they've been they've all been dead and gone yeah. Yeah. Know, long ago. But I have heard of some cases in jurisdictions where the local regs say that any gun, once it's done in evidence, gets destroyed. And it's possible mm -hmm. you've got a sheriff that doesn't want these guns to go into the, the shredder. I mean, that, you know, we're destroying a piece of history, so right. it may never be a closed case. Yeah, maybe. Interesting. Very interesting. But so there's also lots of handguns that come in with mob ties. And, and of course, um, even though we tend to associate it with the military, uh, the M1911 is actually a very popular choice, um, particularly with one guy by the name of John Dillinger. Mm -hmm. And he's got a really cool, totally modded 1911 that is full auto only with a Tommy gun pistol grip in the front. Uh, and it's chambered in 38 Super. It is ridiculous. Um, obviously, that is not what this is. <laughs> <laughs> it, it has not quite a cuts, but some sort of a compensator on as well. It does have some kind of a yeah. compensator, yeah. Um, really, really unusual, unusual design that was custom made for him by a gunsmith, I think in Texas, um, is, is where the gunsmith was based for him. Um, but you know, again, the guys are looking for things that are easy to conceal yep. in their pockets. Now that 1911, not the easiest of things to conceal. But, I mean, compared to a, a revolver, which is a little wider at the time. I mean, the thing with the, the mob era, you know, in the twenties, the gangsters typically could outgun most departments. Absolutely. Between the use of the Thompson submachine gun, you know, the seven or eight round 1911 versus a six round revolver, um, you know, the whippet guns being cut down BARs, mm -hmm. my personal object, holy grail of desire that I want. Um, you know, they really forced department staff to up their armories and, and uh, compete on the same ballistic level as the gangsters. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about being outgunned. So this is a Smith & Wesson military and police, not to be confused with their new MMP line uh, that's the semi-auto. Uh, but this goes on to become the Smith & Wesson Model 10. They still make this gun. This particular gun is uh, actually interesting because engraved on the side plate of it is, is a guy's name. And he was actually a police officer in the Philadelphia Police Department. And he was issued this gun in 1924. Wow. Um, so, you know, you've got guys with full auto Thompsons uh, and modded 1911s. And you've got the police running around with a six shot 38 special revolver. And, and keep in mind, in the era right before this, if you had a, a 32 pocket hammerless or even a 380, you were considered pretty well healed. Where you know now, you know 45 ACP is kind of becoming the table stakes of the game. So just yep. from a what's considered ballistically viable is an entirely different world just 20 years later. Yep. 
Absolutely, and you mentioned 32 Auto, and that's what we've got here. This is a Smith & Wesson. Or I'm sorry, sorry, I'm looking at the revolver. <laughs> this is a Colt Model 1903 Pocket Hammerless, um, which is kind of a misnomer because it does have a hammer. It's an internal hammer, um, but you know, so you don't see it here. And this, I mean, this is a sleek little gun, a little streamlined design. It's perfect to fit down into into your pocket. Um, the 1903, which is what this is, is chambered in 32, uh, and the 1908 is chambered in 380. You know, and those are guns that, like you said, you know, we, we look at them today, and you're like, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare carry a 32, and It'd get you killed in the streets. Right? Yeah, a 380. You're like, oh, you have a death wish, like you know. <laughs> Uh, but at the time, I mean, that was that that was not uncommon. You know, uh, Pretty Boy Floyd had a, had uh, one of these pocket hammerless pistols. You know, and, and you know and these guys are robbing banks and all sorts of stuff. And so, um, it's they get the job done, even though it's not what we you know we would think of today as them being terribly undergunned with something like that. But again, if your cops are just dealing with wheel guns, it's a totally different. I mean, yeah, you're talking a hundred years ago. You know, and, and then I was reading, you know, um, I found the show interesting. So it kind of brushed up a little bit on, on some of the things you were going to talk about as the expert. And it's interesting to me, the same things that made this these guns appealing for military use are why the mobsters love them. Close combat, lightweight, mass production, so they're easy to find and replace parts. Like all of that made it really Good. ideal for organized crime, right? Like Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's why a lot of this took off and why the, you know, the Tommy gun, you know, uh, became what it was and I, th I think maybe a couple others here on the list that we, we were going to talk about but the fact that you could you know do close quarter combat mm -hmm. which is what a lot of the you know the mob shootings would have been absolutely you know? and it's probably a little bit of a twist way to look at it but originally when the military was approached on the thompson submachine gun they had no interest in it it was a very heavy gun um relatively complex to manufacture and it was a pistol caliber so they not really appealing but seeing how effective it was in close quarters how effective it was in mobile combat um you know the military changed their mind and that's why we saw the the tommy gun find service in world war ii mm -hmm. absolutely yeah and you know and police departments eventually adopted you know the tommy gun and there were departments that you know, just within the last 30 and 40 years, finally surplused the last of their Thompson submachine guns, you know, which is wild to think that, you know, there were departments in, in the 80s that still had Tommy guns in the armories. Yep, somewhere there was an armorer still maintaining a Thompson. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What, uh, what like, politically happened to, you know, obviously, I, I know there's been a multitude of laws to try to kind of combat, combat civilians or mobsters having this stuff not that they follow the laws uh yeah. but you know at what time period do you see that those guns start to become less accessible to the public uh logan like when, when did it and i know it's not like one thing that happened but like at what period did it start to become less accessible to the public because originally when the tommy gun came out i'm pretty sure right like average civilian could could buy one right absolutely yep. yeah so yeah. walk so, to a hardware store and pick yeah, them off the shelf exactly yep. so like what's the what's the story there like at what point did the uh, probably, I'm sure this had police advocating for it of like, hey, we're getting mowed down by these things. We got to try right. to limit the reach. When, when does that start to happen? 1934. 1934. The National Firearms Act of 1934 comes in and it regulates short-barreled rifles, short-barreled shotguns, suppressors, and machine guns. Originally, it was also supposed to regulate handguns, mm -hmm. but that was struck down by the courts. Yep. Yeah. So it, you know, as as restrictive as the NFA is today, can you imagine? You know, couldn't own any of the three guns, you know, that we just showed here on the podcast without having to go through the restrictive NFA mm -hmm. processes. And 
it, yes, it's cumbersome and and it's uh, inefficient and un-American. Um, but it's interesting to look at how that process started. So you know, today the NFA tax for the majority of things is two hundred dollars, and that's been unchanged since the law passed in thirty four. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we look at it today. And you're like two hundred bucks. Yeah, okay. I'd rather spend that on ammo. But you know, for most people, two hundred bucks isn't as big of an inconvenience as it could be, right? But when you figure in 1934, when the Tommy gun itself was about $200, you're putting a 100% tax Mm -hmm. on that gun. Um, And so it was a lot more prohibitive Mm -hmm. in the past. Um, And thank God the government hasn't been smart enough to, to, you know, make that $200 keep up with inflation, you know. Um, but so, yeah, so to, to answer your question, a really <laughs> roundabout long way, it was 1934 uh, is when the stuff starts to be regulated. And, of course, at that point in time, all of the the criminals said, oh, man, oh, everything we've got is illegal. We're going to turn it in. And, you know, we haven't had a problem with any NFA no. items or, no. or crime at no. all. Well, see, now amazing. Logan's the historian, so he can't, like, go up down the rabbit hole like I can as the non-historian. <laughs> <laughs> I can point out that, you know, the bill passed in 1934 were pro ended well before that and all the mobile crime and the gangster era kind of ended before that so that era gets blamed a lot for the Mm -hmm. introduction of uh, the nfa but some of us question the timing let's put it that way yeah yeah exactly um but that's so that's where you start to get our first restrictions on things and then of course that's uh even more uh expanded upon with the gun control act in 1968 uh, and then beyond that you know, with the hughes amendment in 1986 mm-hmm. uh, affecting uh, modern machine guns and things of that like that so um yeah there, there's been a lot of laws that have changed like what, what was the movie uh, was it the highwayman Oh um, yeah, the uh, the uh, Frank Hamer story. Yeah, with yeah. Uh, Costner and uh, Woody Harrelson. I know the scene yeah. you talk about. Right. Yeah. You know where they go into a hardware store. And he's like, I need two Colt monitors. I need seven hundred and fifty rounds of this. You know, and I need four Tommy guns and everything. I mean, the guy's just in a hardware store and they're just yeah. pulling it all down. You know, that's how it was. Yeah. You know, you and me and anybody could just go into the hardware store and buy it. All it was a wonderful time to be an American. (laughs) What what fascinates me about this era, especially, is this is kind of where we. I mean, people have been yeah cutting down shotguns forever. We Mm. know that, but some of the gun modifications that really kicked in here that you didn't see before. I mean, the Whippet gun, as I've already mentioned, just absolutely fascinates me. Mm -hmm. You know, Colt monitor or a Browning BAR. You chop down the buttstock, you chop down the barrel, you make it something you can whip it out when you need to. It's quick, like a little Whippet dog, Um, but it's still thirty out a full auto thirty out six. You've already talked about um, Dillinger's uh, 38 Super Full Auto, but the the gangster era really brought the concept of performance modifications into firearms a lot further along than it had been. Yep, absolutely. And so, you know, while we're talking about all the mob guns and stuff, can you tell us, Alan, in the past week, has there been anything that ties into that that people have won on Gunbroker? Absolutely. You know, we, we see a lot of these vintage firearms on Gunbroker a lot. Thompson's are certainly... You know, there's a fair number on there, but, uh, you know, knowing we're going to talk about this topic today, I was, you know, kind of astounded. And I looked at the, I, I kind of get a list of some of the top sellers every day. And this very morning, uh, a World War II era Savage manufactured 1928 A1 sold, um, completely vintage, full auto for, for and it could have been yours if you'd have just outbid them. You'd only had to bid $39,000 to outbid them. Oh, man, if I wasn't traveling yesterday and I'd been, you know. <laughs> there were no low ballers. For a mere, <laughs> there were no low ballers. That's right. They knew what they had. That's right. For a mere $38,999 and probably 99 cents, you you too could have owned a, right. your own Savage uh, uh, full auto. Plus your $200 tax stamp to the government. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> anything anything else uh, related to that? Any other? Um, you know, we, we do see, obviously, I mean, the 1911 is ubiquitous. So looking at the data for that, we can find ranges from a, a few hundred to six figures. Mm-hmm. But one thing that really stands out to me on our topic today is the ones you see really drawing in the premium. Certainly are the ones of the right vintage and the right era, but the 38 super guns. Yeah. Um, anything in that kind of standard format and 38 super always draws a premium. Is in the day in its day, 38 Super was the new hotness. You know, yep. we were starting to see the the first generation of kind of bulletproof vests and body armor, and 38 Super punched right through it. So it was the first of the you know the the armor piercing bullets in the handgun, and it was it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, nowadays we think of 38 Super and it's a gamer round. Mm-hmm. It's you want to shoot a light recoiling shot that's going to still make power factor. So if you're an open division shooter, you know, you love your 38 Super. So just seeing how that's gone from, you know, kind of the pinnacle of ballistic performance to, you know, gaming is, is kind of comical. But th- that's where the premium really draws in. And we see 38 Super 1911s, you know, starting in the six $7,000 range and just going up from there based on condition. You just said something that made me think of a show you and I did on, on our old show, Gearbox Talk. Mm-hmm. Um, Logan and I did a show, Shot Show 1921, I think, because mm-hmm. yes. that was that was the year. Two, two, 2021 was the year that there was no Shot Show. Mm-hmm. So yep. Logan and I sat down. It's like, let's get weird. Let's talk about what was popular a hundred years ago. What would people have been? I don't know why we picked a hundred years. We just did. That seemed yeah. like a nice round number. Ninety-seven. Uh, we could count really to it. Ninety-seven know? wouldn't have sounded as good. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, but the. Um, it reminded me something he said reminded me of something you said back then of talking about all the body armor that was rolling out at that time and i'm kind of connecting the dots here of thinking of well the reason being i bet a lot of these machine guns that were like was was it driven by the need by military police or was it you know uh entrepreneurs seeing them like where did that start if you if you recall if i had to hazard a guess and and i'm trying to remember trying to pull off the top of my head i think it's more driven uh you know law enforcement and entrepreneurs and stuff like that as opposed to the military because you know at that time point at that time period you know we've just come out of world war one body armor is absolutely not standardized yeah. at that point it's a weird mixture of just bolted together metal plates and uh and odd fabrics it is nowhere near um what we get you know even five to ten years later so i think it's definitely it's definitely not military yeah. driven it's definitely more civilian marketing uh in that respect and, yeah, and that interwar period between because everything we thought we knew about warfare got thrown out the window in world war one yep. so that whole middle ground is the military really has no idea what they're doing at that point. They're reinventing themselves. So any developments in that area almost had to have come from the civilian yeah, market. Yeah, the, the body armor, too, is not at all what we think of today. No. I mean, oh it's, God, it look, no. people walking around, it looks like metal buckets cut out with, with eye holes almost. You know, right. if, I, if, if I can remember what you – I remember looking up some of the things mm-hmm. that Logan was talking about, mm-hmm. and uh, it looked like something out of a cartoon. You know, I mean, it was it, literally life jackets where they'd cut out the, <laughs> the buoyant foam and replace it with steel plates. Yeah. Right. I mean, that was kind of the early take on it. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And you got guys, you know, now you see YouTube videos, guys doing it for shock value of putting on their own bulletproof vest and, and shooting yeah. at it, you know, but like, but that's don't, how they were don't, actually don't try that at home. Yeah. No. Please do not try that at home. But that's how guys were actually testing that stuff yeah. back in the day. But mm-hmm. so, and so, you know, the, so again, the police had to up, up, um, basically up their ballistic game with it. So that's why you see things that some of the traditional hunting stuff that they ended up using again, they kind of had to go for what they had their hands on. So that's why you see, you know, some of the calibers used that you would not even wrap your head around for law enforcement i mean the 351 winchester Mm -hmm. and the auto loading remington uh, was at the 74 the 7400 
Um, I got so many numbers floating in my head. Yeah. But regardless, they're like, we shoot him. The body armor defeats our rounds. So what do we have that's going to shoot through his body armor, his body armor, and his body armor if they line up right? Yeah, I think the most interesting thing I've learned in the four and a half episodes that we've recorded now is that I think you you may have said this earlier. I, I always thought that the research went through the military and mm-hmm. then it got dumbed down to a civilian version, maybe a police version in between there. And that's just, you go to SHOT Show, you see all these guys using this crazy stuff and you're like, oh, one day we'll probably have a consumer version of that. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm learning through just, I mean, literally the last hundred years of history that we've talked about on, on a couple of different shows of how much more cyclical it is. And by it's more like a flywheel, if yes. I will. It's, it's, it's things at any point might come in through consumer, police, or military, and they end up making their way through all of it, mm-hmm. no matter which entry point it is. You know, I've heard you say multiple times now of the, you know, this this device came in through civilian use and the military didn't want it until they saw, like, oh, actually, this is pretty effective. This is really popular. This is really easy to use. This is really available, mm-hmm. I think, has yep. played into quite a bit of it. And it's just totally flipped my perspective on the demand and where where it comes from. You know, a lot of... It's just not what I thought. I mean, it's really interesting. Without getting too far off topic, a little bit of it is the fact that we just don't really have government armories per se anymore. You know, the Mm -hmm. original Springfield Armory was a government facility. Right. And that's where the research, and we still have Aberdeen Proving Grounds and whatnot, but that's more of a test bed for the consumer, the manufacturing market to come in and offer things up. So, yeah. The armory closed in 1968, you know, so it's been almost 60 years that we have not had that government led innovation and research and development it's they've had to rely on the private sector to to develop the stuff and that's why you get things like we've talked about in our previous episode you know with the m17 and the spear and and things of that nature they're going to civilian manufacturers to come up with the designs for the new military weaponry which ticks me off because i want my tax dollars to go to weapons development (laughs) (laughs) i'll happily pay for that spending it somewhere because i've seen the budget and it's sizable absolutely yeah so uh you know if if you guys are interested in picking up any of the the guns that we've kind of talked about here on the show whether it's a you know a turn of the century police revolver or you're looking for a really sleek pocket pistol or the tried and true 1911 or even if you're looking for a full auto tommy gun you know you can find all of the above on gunbroker.com um and you can absolutely log the time that you've listened to this podcast uh into your profile on the go wild platform yeah go to post you hit log time and then you scroll down hit outdoor podcast you're going to see this show you can pitch which episode you listen to you can tag all of us here all of them you've watched them all of course yeah of course uh that was a given (laughs) um we're on episode four here you've clearly heard now four total episodes um so you know but you can log that and you can unlock rewards some of which are going to be gun broker stuff so yeah, the real quick question i have since we have brad here do we get to log our time for recording the podcast oh, yeah. okay yeah, right. i do it all the time yeah. yeah oh See? man yeah, i do it even, all the time so. even better mm-hmm. yeah cool well thanks everyone for tuning in to this episode of the no low ballers podcast i hope you guys learned something today uh inspired you to maybe go out and learn something more and and google some stuff and then you know log some time and go wild spend some money on a gun broker and we will see you right here on the next episode of the no low ballers podcast (laughs) 